we are looking at probably one of the top ten Sunday school lessons of your childhood. It's Noah in the flood tonight, guys. When you go into probably any church building nursery, you're going to see probably the ark and the animals coming in there. And it's easy to look at that story and just, I don't know, be sentimental about it. And just, what a wonderful thing, like two by two into the ark and so nice and everything. It's a story of judgment. It's, it's a harsh reality. And I think to the modern you know, reader, the, the modern person, as they think about Noah and the ark, they think God is a monster. And so when you think about this story and the judgment, it's hard. It's hard to get our minds around this, that he would destroy the entire earth and the people and the animals and everything in a flood. I don't know if you can remember even seeing those pictures of the tsunami in Japan, you know, a few years ago and just the incredible devastation, you know, just watching houses and cars and people uh, getting washed away. It's not a it's not a pretty thing. So um, part of what I want to do tonight is kind of grapple with the issue of judgment that, that God is showing here. And at the same time, understand this is also all about grace and God's salvation as well. So I'm going to try to it's a huge area of scripture i'm only going to read like parts of it but it's still a lot so sit back and relax and i'm going to read uh various portions okay so this is uh genesis chapter six hear god's word when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them the sons of god saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the earth, of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with the violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. That's that's basically 450 feet long, 75 feet high, 75 feet wide. Make roof for the make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. 
Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to them to, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in, into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now I'm going to jump. Um, so basically, he, he goes through, he does all this. Uh, the animals come on board, and then the flood comes down in chapter 7. Uh, and so now we're going to look at chapter 8, after this, the flood subsides. And in verse 13, I'm going to pick up. In the sixth year, six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. This is about a year's time, okay, from the whole episode of the water coming, the flood going down. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the, on the earth, that they may swarm in the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then God, then Noah, excuse me, built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so now I'm going to jump again as God makes this covenant with Noah in verse 8. Then God, in chapter 9, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, 
and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This ends the reading of, of God's holy word. So like I said, when we look at this passage, or when any modern person I think looks at this passage, they can become very overwhelmed with the fact that God must be a monster to wipe out the entire earth and every living thing on the earth except for eight people, Noah and his family. And so part of what I want to do is address that. Why the flood in the first place? That's the first thing I want to talk about. Why the flood? Well, that has to do with the fact that God is holy and just. And man, in his state, in this section of the Scriptures, in Genesis 6, right back here in the beginning, three chapters after Genesis 3 and the fall of sin, has become totally wicked, evil, and corrupt. So part of what I want to bring out here is the why of the, of the judgment of God. And the why is because it was destructive, moral violence and decay that was going on in the earth. More than we can imagine. I mean, you might have in your mind, like, The Walking Dead at this moment, because I like to watch that. And when you watch that show, you're just, I mean, it's awful. I mean, there's zombies everywhere, and just the whole landscape of everything just looks horrible. Or you might be thinking of, uh, I was thinking of the movie... No Country for Old for old Men. Has anybody seen that? That guy McCormack, he writes some pretty dark stuff. But, you know, that's basically a, mo- a movie that's set in a desert out in Mexico or Texas on the border. And it's all about greed for this drug money that's found. And these two guys that are kind of going after this money and basically destroying one another. It's a picture of violence and it's a picture of the depravity of man. What we have here in Genesis 6 is multiplied many times. In verses 5 and 6, we can see this general picture that God says. This is kind of a summary verse. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved, grieved him to his heart. There's prevalence of sin. Every intention and of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in the beginning of this passage, it was kind of interesting. It talked about this issue of marriage, that as, as man multiplied, the sons of men married the daughters, or the sons of God married the, the daughters of men. And you might think, what does this mean? And commentators have thought, well, is this some sort of angelic demon being that inhabits man and then marries some kind of like alien-like creature? There's been people that have thought that, but ultimately, I think most commentators say it's this. We've been talking about two lines since Genesis chapter 3, a line of faith and a line of unbelief. The line of faith, as Logan was talking about last week, was Seth, his line, or, and, and, and Abel. 
They were the line of belief from Adam. And it went through Abel, and then it goes through Seth. Okay, and all through the Old Testament, you see this line of faith, those who believed, going down into, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and later Moses, and then David and the kings. And you see this, this line of faith all through the Old Testament scriptures. So it was getting at the fact that the sons of God, those in the faithful line, were beginning to marry and intermarry with this, the daughters of men, which represented those, the unbelieving line. So you have right here in the beginning, the family and marriage uh, being basically destroyed by intermarrying and those uh, without faith were marrying those with faith. And things were becoming corrupted. Marriage is becoming corrupted. There's a deterioration of the family and a moral slide into uh, into sin and increasing in the land. Um, in fact, in part of that, you might have noticed, too, that God says, I'm not going to put up with man. I'm going to limit the time he lives on the earth to 120 years. And so there's almost this judgment that's beginning to happen in chapter 6 in the beginning. But not just that. There was this other, these other people are mentioned, the Nephilim. And that word, Nephilim, in Hebrew means the fallen ones. They were also known as these warriors or mighty men, men of renown, it says. Again, they don't know exactly who these guys are. They think that later on, the Canaanites, they were kind of called the Nephilim as well. But these guys basically were destructive, violent warriors that roamed the earth. And... It, it's a picture, again, of violence. Their name means violence. And so we have the breakdown of the family. We have these dudes that are running around that are violent, the Nephilim, the men of renown that are wreaking havoc, havoc on the earth. And then uh, we just have this picture of corruption and violence. There's violence everywhere. In fact, look at 6.11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. Um, Derek Kidner, one of the commentators, talks about the Hebrew for corrupted or destroyed also makes it plain that what God decided to destroy, in verse 13, had been virtually self-destroyed already. So this is the picture of destruction. It's like the people were basically engaging in all kinds of violence, destructive behavior, and they were destroying themselves. And it's almost as if God, in His judgment, just continues to let them go and finishes the job. Because things had gone so bad. The earth was so filled with violence. It was like Lord of the Rings, Mordor. You know, people had become orcs, so to speak. And it was time for them just to be wiped clean. And... At the same time, it grieved God's heart, it says. This was not something that God delighted in, the death of the wicked. This is something that grieved His heart. But yet, we're, we, we have a God who is holy and just and righteous. And we have this multiplication and multiplication of sin, the sinful behavior to the point where God cannot stand it anymore. That's how bad it had become. 
And so, God, in His wisdom and in His terrible justice, brings about this flood. So, as you think about this flood story and the destruction through the flood and the death of the entire earth except for eight people, you have to go back to why. And the why is God's holiness. We don't quite grasp it. How holy and righteous He is and how sinful man is, how sinful we are. We're struck with this all through the Bible. You won't understand the Bible at all. You won't understand the Gospel at all unless you understand this issue of God's incredible holiness and righteousness and our sinfulness. And the fact that really God... The fact that we're sitting here breathing is God's grace and mercy to us. The Bible is very black and white with this. Isaiah, this prophet, this good guy, okay? Amazing prophet of Israel. And Isaiah 6 has this vision of God. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And the cherubim, the seraphim, he's like entered into the heavenlies. And he sees this picture and... The angels are there. The heavenly beings are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they just keep saying it over and over again. And he is struck. And this good guy who's righteous, who's a prophet in Israel, says, Woe is me. Basically, I'm dead. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. I'm dead. That's the relationship he had with God. Realizing he's incredibly holy. And at the same time, he sees his sin. Now we know the rest of the story there is God sends his uh, angel and cleanses him and he is restored in his relationship with God. But this initial issue of God's holiness and our sin, this is why there's judgment. This is why there's the flood. This is ultimately why at the end of time there's going to be the great judgment day. And no one will be able to say to God, who's perfect and holy, like, I didn't do that, or I didn't think that, or I didn't... Because everything will be exposed and will be laid bare and our consciences and every secret thing or thing we've ever done will be exposed. And it's, it's horrible to think about it if, if you're left with yourself, if you're left just with your own sinfulness. We can't stand there. It's like we're going to be destroyed. This is why Moses... Sees the burning bush. He's undone as well. And God says, take off your sandals. It's holy ground. You can't read the Bible. You come to the New Testament. Jesus and Peter. First miracle he does with the fish. Peter's overwhelmed uh, with the, his sinfulness. And he says to Jesus, after he does this great miracle, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. So, the story of the flood... It also relates to us because we see the incredible holiness and the justice and the judgment of God. We shouldn't just think that's for them back there because God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And His judgment is also going to come to fruition again at the end of time. And so part of looking at this passage means we've got to look at ourselves and do we agree with what the Bible says about ourselves? It declares that we are sinners. It declares, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Um, can you say, you know what, deep in my heart, like, yeah, I can see like a lot of my intentions are sinfulness all the time. Except for the grace of God. Except for the grace of God. 
Theologians call this total depravity, if you've ever heard that word. And it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, but it means that every part of ourselves, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our, you know, the whole part of us, the totality of us, is affected and fallen by sin. Ultimately, we're dead in sin. And Romans 1, um, Paul says that, you know, we've replaced God for idols and created different gods that we worship instead of the one true God. That sin is basically just a worship disorder. It's loving relationships or people or Xbox or whatever it is more than the Lord. It's this thing we do and it comes from the fact that we're fallen and we're sinners. And so um, the judgment comes because it's so bad. And we weren't there, but if you're still having trouble with this, you have to trust this. that Do you believe that God is God and that He is just in His judgments? We weren't back there. We have a picture of it from the Scriptures. But we have to trust that God is just in His judgments. And so you kind of have to do this loop in your mind. Okay, if you believe in God and you believe God is holy and good and pure and right, and He judges purely and truthfully and with justice, then you have to say, well, I believe in that God that that brought this flood on the earth. It's horrible to think about, but it's a terrible, like the old school terrible, justice of God. The second thing, that's okay, that's the depressing part. <laughs> the other thing is, why is there salvation at all? Why grace? Why doesn't He just wipe them all out? Well, we know that God in His grace decides to save the world through one man and one family. Kind of sounds familiar if you skip forward. But the story of the flood shows us not just the picture of God's just judgment, but His incredible grace to save. And so, why does He do it? Well, because Genesis 3.15 and We've been talking about that seed promise of the gospel way back in the Garden of Eden where God said, you know, to the serpent and to, to he said, you know, I'm going to crush your head or you're going to bruise the heel of the seed. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That there was this promise that God was going to deal with sin and make all things right. And so... Through that seed promise, now you're up here to where everything is corrupt. But God is not going to forget that promise. And He is going to bring Noah and his family through this judgment in this wooden ark that He creates. And so, when you read this passage, it's it's very depressing. And then all of a sudden you get to Noah. And it all changes in verses, chapter 6, verse 8. He says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it says later, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation of his time, and he walked with God. Noah's name 
is really means rest or relief. So it's interesting. We have God choosing this man. His name even kind of sounds like the gospel. It means relief, rest. And in verse 29 of chapter 5, it says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so even at his birth with his name, it's almost like God is saying, this is the one I've chosen right now to bring about salvation in his generation. And you might think, well, is it because Noah was righteous? Is this why God chose him? Like he he earned this favor in God's eyes and therefore God chose him? And that's kind of having it backwards because... Really what's going on is Noah believed and he had this relationship with the Lord. He walked with God and through that, the Lord chose him to be his instrument of salvation. But it wasn't based on his own works. It was grace. And we see his faithfulness throughout the passage. He obeys the Lord. He, Where everybody else is going the wrong way, Noah has this incredible faith. And in 6.22, it says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He builds this huge wooden structure. It's basically like the size of Bird Stadium. Not, not, not that tall, but 450, the, the football field is 300 feet. So another 150 feet long. So just think, being in Bird Stadium, we've got 450 feet of a boat, okay, an ark there. And then 75 feet high is at least... I would say up to the second deck. Probably not, not above the second deck, but just think of that structure. Football field is 50 yards, what is it, 50 yards wide? So it's not as wide as the football field, but it's a huge structure. It would, it's kind of like sitting there filling up the stadium. Noah did this in the desert. It had not rained. He had, had not seen a flood. He's in the desert. And God is calling him to do this momentous task and gives him the grace and the ability supernaturally to do this, to build this incredible ark. So he's obedient to the Lord, but again, it's an obedient faith. Noah was not perfect, and we know that because as soon as the flood ends and he goes out, first thing he did was a sacrifice for sin. He builds an altar and he, and he has a sacrifice. So we know he wasn't perfect. It wasn't because... Noah did everything that he was saved. It's because he had faith in the promise. And he believed God. And in Hebrews 11.7 it says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Why was Noah chosen? His faith. But God gave him that gift of faith. It was all his grace. God saves the world through this man and his family. Sounds familiar. Because Noah really is a type. He's a foreshadow of God ultimately saving the world through a man. It's a foreshadowing of, of Jesus. You know, whereas Noah was saved and he saved his family of eight people, 
and he rebooted creation, basically. The Lord Jesus is the one God chose to save the entire world and all who place their faith in him. And so you have this picture here of grace, a picture of the gospel, a picture of the entire world in destructive sin. And the only hope is if you get on that boat and be with Noah and his family. And it's really a picture of what we face now. I mean, we, you know, if you are not in Christ, to some extent, you're outside of the boat. You're outside of God's favor. You're floating around getting ready to drown. And only as you come to acknowledge your sin and place your faith in Jesus, do you rest in His saving ark, so to speak, as you believe in that promise. So, this is not a story about be like Noah, but it's more of a story of have the faith that Noah had, believing in this promise. The last thing is this. There's a seal and a covenant promise at the end of this. This would be, how do we make it real for ourselves? So, why was there judgment? Why was there grace? And how can we make it real for ourselves? And that's this last picture we have. So, after Noah gets off the boat with his family, and we see this covenant ceremony take place, and this section of Scripture is the first time we see the word covenant. And covenant in the Bible is an important word because that's the word that signifies this promise. It's like a law, a lawyer's word, a covenant contract. And back in the old days, in the ancients, ancient days, a king would make a covenant with a lesser person, a peasant, so to speak. And we have God enacting a covenant contract here. And usually these covenants always involve animal sacrifice, so we have that. Noah gets off the ark and he makes this covenant contract and he sacrifices animals to the Lord. And it says in verse 21 of chapter 9, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. And so God establishes this covenant, this promise, that he's not going to do this ever again. He's never going to flood or destroy the world again. And then he gives a sign. All in the, in the Bible, you'll see these covenants. You'll see a sacrifice. You'll see a promise sealed with blood. Blood is spilled. And then you'll see a sign of the covenant. And we know later on there's going to be a sign of circumcision for God's covenant. Uh, in the new, there's going to be the Passover feast in the Old Testament. Um, with the sign of blood over the door mantle and that sort of thing. And now we have God, before all of that, giving this rainbow. And in verse, around verse 15, it says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me 
and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh is on the earth. Now, we think of this several thousand years on the other side. But you've got to think of yourself as Noah and his family. We just went through a year on the water, this huge flood, and everything was destroyed. How do we know you're not going to do that again? How do we know we're not going to be destroyed? So God gives the rainbow. It's not like... Commentators don't believe that this was the first rainbow ever. Okay, But God is saying that that rainbow in the, in the cloud... That is the sign that you should not doubt that I'm never going to destroy this world like this again. You're safe. You're safe through faith. Believe. And here's this evidence that you're going to be saved. You're going to be okay. This rainbow is set. Now, it's interesting. Rainbow, bow in Hebrew is this word cassette, which is also refers to a bow or a war bow, a weapon. We're talking about this kind of bow. Okay? Now, instead of a symbol of combat, it's now a symbol of peace. It's as if the Lord is now hanging up His weapon of war. Or as I've heard preached, the bow is not directed towards man and judgment, but now it's directed heavenward towards himself. It's as if the Lord is saying, I am going to take the hit. I am going to take the judgment for sin. And we know that ultimately that's really what the Lord Jesus did. We deserved destruction. We deserved the flood. We deserve hell for our sin, but what happens at the cross? The Lord Jesus says, No, I'm gonna give it I'm gonna take my war bow and point it at my son. And he will be destroyed so that you are able to float in that ark and be safe without fear of judgment. And every time you see that rainbow, every time you see that sign, you remember my love for you. And my grace poured out signs and seals to remember. This is what God does all through the Scriptures. He gives us these signs so that we in our frailty can see things. It's like, I think that you two, like the double rainbow guy, you know. It's amazing, a double rainbow. What does it mean? Well, it means God loves you. And He died for you. And He's not going to destroy you because of the cross. It also means that these signs and seals, these sacraments that we have in the church now, are important things for us. Things like baptism, things like the Lord's Supper, those aren't just like side events. But God wants us to enter into those signs and seals as we worship God at church. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's a sign and seal of God's love for you. Sometimes intellectually our ears, we just can't we can't grasp it all. We need 
the wine or the grape juice, and we need to taste the bread or the gluten-free cracker to, to recognize that God loves me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the kind of God we have. That He has taken the hit so that we can rest. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks for this time to reflect on this passage, Lord. I know that it was a very long passage and there's a lot there. Lord, would you use what was good uh, to encourage us to live by faith, to recognize, Jesus, that you took our judgment for us so that we would be set free? And Father, would you help us to uh, be able to display that joy to others, Lord, and that we would be, to some extent, uh, like arcs to others, um, revealing the goodness of Jesus, that they can rest. They can rest from your judgment. They can rest from their own bondage of sin and the destructive things that tear us down and, and sink us. So, Lord, would you do that by your grace in Christ's name? Amen.